0: Well, if you were to do some research on people in American society today, and if you took those who thought that, you know, religion was important, and and you asked them, why? Why do you think that religion is important? What's the value of religion? I wouldn't be surprised if one of the top reasons, the top explanations you got had to do with finding inner peace. Finding inner peace, finding stability, happiness, joy. People want to be happy. They want that that peace that is strong enough to get them through the hard times. It's, I think this is one reason why, if you if you look at the statistics, uh, just cold hard atheistic materialism. There's there's actually there's actually a small minority. Of, of American society. You know, they're, they're a loud minority, but there really aren't that many atheists out there. Most people, they want to believe in some kind of higher power, some kind of spiritual realm that can f- help them have peace and stability and happiness. If you, if you turn on the TV or the, or the radio, you'll, you'll hear many ads and, and commercials talking to us about the importance of mental health and and the importance of the value of therapy. Evidently, many do not seem to be mentally healthy. Indeed, after you know, coming off of the events of 2020 and, and COVID, there's been a, a good amount of talk about a mental health crisis in our nation. If you do an Internet search, I can assure you there's no shortage of articles, videos, Programs uh, that are designed to help people find inner peace and, and mental and emotional wellness and to cope with life's challenges. And as Christians, this raises the question: Does the Bible have anything to say about mental health? Does the Gospel of Jesus Christ have, and its implications, do, does it speak to our Im- emotional and mental well-being? Does God care about our mental health? Whether we deal with ongoing depression or anxiety or any one of the plethora of disorders that plague people today, does God care about these things? Does does the scripture provide us any any insights into these matters? Well, I've got good good news for you this morning. The answer is yes. Our passage of Scripture this morning is is very much focused upon the mental and emotional condition of the Christian. God's Word has a lot to say about anxiety and fear and depression and and inner peace. God has a lot to say about these things. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You can find this on page 923 if you're using the Pew Bibles this morning. Page 923. As we near the end of our study through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church, we're reminded that this was a church that was facing a lot from without and from within. Intense persecution from without. As Paul mentions those who opposed them many times in this letter. The, the dangers of, of persecution from a, Ro- a Greco-Roman society that, that viewed this new religious movement with hostility and suspicion to the, the false teachers that Paul had to warn them of. And also even the pressures and, and, and the problems from within as, as we thought about last week with Euodia and Syntyche. These, these two prominent women in the church that, that there was this ongoing quarrel between them. And this letter was written not only to a church that was facing a lot, but it was written by a man who was facing a lot. It, this is Paul's uh, one of his letters written from prison as he is is himself the victim of vicious religious persecution he writes this letter from a roman prison where he's suffering for his allegiance to jesus christ and despite these hardships despite the the immense uncertainties that these people faced the troubles that paul and the early christians were facing this letter is simply dripping with the sweet nectar of joy. It is, it's just the, the aroma that comes from this letter is the, the calming aroma of peace. And importantly, it's not a joy. It's not a peace that ignores the hardships and trials, pretending as though they didn't exist. Paul addresses these things time and time again. He, he's real about the troubles that that he was facing and that they were facing. And yet, in and through them all, there's an overflow of joy and peace and hope. And so our text this morning focuses on the emotions that we experience as human beings and the emotions that we are called to experience as human beings who have been redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ As those who are awaiting the fullness and the consummation of what he saved us for at his return, at the resurrection. So as we read these verses, one thing should become very clear. That it matters to God how we feel. It matters to God how we feel. In fact, sometimes the way we feel is wrong. It's sinful. It's the result of Faith that is weak. It matters to God how we feel as His redeemed children. And part of our fulfillment of the Great Commission, part of obeying all that Christ has commanded, has to do with cultivating godly emotions in the Christian life. So let's read this morning. And though we're going to focus our attention mainly on verses 5 through 7, I'm going to have a start in verse 4. I actually already preached on verse 4 several weeks ago. And that recording is available online. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on verse 4 this morning. But I would like to at least read it and touch upon it briefly for the sake of context. So we can get the full picture of the kind of emotional life that the Lord our God is calling us too, as Christians. And so if you have your place, Philippians 4, I'm going to ask, would you please stand if you are able for the reading of God's holy word? Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. This is the word of God. Well, in this passage, as I intend to show this morning, by the help of God, we have a series of imperatives, a series of commands, and they have to do with our mental and emotional state. So rejoice, don't be anxious. And sprinkled in, there are some, there's statements about God. The Lord is at hand in verse 5. In verse 7, we we see this promise of God's peace acting as a guard over the hearts and minds of Philippian believers. And then as we will see in coming weeks in verse 9, there's this other promise that the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. And though not all of these statements are connected by connecting words, you know, often as we've... Read through this letter, you know, there'll be a therefore. And we ask, what's it there for? Right? Or or a because. There's not as, on the surface, there's not as much connection uh, between these, these series of statements. And yet, I don't think that these are just a random collection of random thoughts. Rather, the statements that Paul makes about God are very much connected to the commands he makes about our emotions. There's a connection between what we know and believe about God and how we feel. There's a connection between feelings and faith, between our mental and emotional state and our deeply held beliefs, what we're believing about God and reality and the hope that we have. It's significant that God is said to be near. In verse 5, the Lord is at hand. And as I mentioned in verse 9, a little further down, the God of peace will be with you. Right alongside. And this, this is right alongside all of these calls not to be anxious and to rejoice It's significant that his peace is spoken of and emphasized here in a passage that focuses on the heart and the mind, the feeling and the thinking, the peace of God. So what is the connection? What's the connection? There's a proper emotional response to the truth of the Lord our God being near to us. The God who has loved us and saved those who trust in him, as this letter of Philippians has shown. And the the more we comprehend this, the more joy we ought to experience, the more capacity that we will have to be reasonable, to be gracious, the less reason we have to be anxious. So to summarize this this connection in a sentence, leave the main idea Of this passage is this, that the mental state of those under the protection of the God of peace ought to be rejoicing, reasonableness, and peace. The mental state of those under the protection of the God of peace ought to be rejoicing, reasonableness, and peace. Picture a tree this tree is its its leaves are green, its branches are strong and, and full, its trunk is sturdy and its bark is healthy. And this just for the sake of uh, of picturing our where we're going in our sermon this morning, we'll, we'll we'll treat this tree as the tree of godly emotions, the healthy tree of godly emotions that God calls us to. And in this tree, there's different branches. The branch of joy, the branch of reasonableness, the branch of, of peace. And as we think about all right, here's what, here's what our emotional life should look like if it's a healthy tree, if we're to compare it to a healthy tree. Secondly, what we're going to do is we're going to go down and examine the rich soil of gospel truth that sustains such a tree as this, considering what does it mean that the Lord is at hand and how his peace will guard believers? What are the, what's the soil that can grow such a tree as this with reasonableness and rejoicing and peace? So as our first point this morning, let's, let's consider the mental state called for in believers of of rejoicing, reasonableness, and peace. This is the the tree of godly emotions. The tree of godly emotions. So one one particularly sun-splashed branch of this tree in which the birds are singing happily is the the branch of joy. The branch of joy. We see in verse 4 that believers are to rejoice in the Lord always. Always. And this is repeated for emphasis. Again, I will say, rejoice. And as we considered several weeks ago, this joy is not optional. It's commanded repeatedly throughout this letter. This joy is not optional. This joy is not circumstantial. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the good times, rejoice in the Lord. In the bad times, rejoice in the Lord. This joy is rooted in the Lord. It is joy in God. It comes from God. It has to do with the hope and the salvation and the love that we have in Him. This joy is real and genuine. And yet it doesn't forbid that we ever weep tears of sorrow, as other scriptures plainly show. Sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Turning our attention uh, to another branch of this tree, we see the the, the branch of, we see a branch that has been battered by strong winds and uh, has some old scars from flying debris, and yet this branch is particularly strong and resilient. It's been through a lot, and yet it knows how, how not to snap, not to break. This is the branch of reasonableness. As verse 5 says to believers, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I'm going to spend a little more time on this branch because of all the commands and and, and this section of verses, I think this is the one that's prone to be misunderstood, you know, passed over, ignored. You know, we've probably, at least from my personal experience, I've thought a lot about, you know, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer. But as I as I study this section, what is this talking about? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What is that? So let's think about this. What is this reasonableness that's called for here? Now, in the ESV translation, it's the the, the Greek word is translated reasonableness. In other translations, it's, it's rendered differently. In the NASB, it's translated, let your gentle spirits be known to all men. In the CSB, let your graciousness be known to everyone. In the, in the New King James, it has gentleness with a note that says it, you know, it could also be graciousness or forbearance. And this is pointing to the fact that what we're dealing with here is a, a rich Greek word, it's full of meaning. This 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 is a word that that has a lot of meaning packed into it. When the old English pastor and Bible scholar John Gill describes the nuances of meaning of this word as quote, not dealing with men according to the severity of laws and strict justice, but according to equity and with mildness and, and gentleness, giving up strict and proper right, receding from what is a man's due and not rigidly insisting on it, putting up with affronts and injuries and bearing with them in patience and interpreting things in the best sense and putting the best constructions on the words and actions they will bear and in, and in using others' whether they be inferiors or equals, with all humanity and kindness and respect. So, in other words, this is the kind of person that you're not worried is going to fly off the handle if you happen to say the wrong thing or snap at you at any moment. They're not given to fits of temper or rage. They're able to handle offenses and hurts graciously and not to strike back lightning fast like a rattlesnake that's been stepped on. The ancient Christian Chrysostom describes this attitude taking into consideration the historical context that Paul is writing to persecuted Christians. And he writes that it it is probable that they would be at enmity with the wicked. That would be the natural response, right? As this hostile culture is treating you unjustly. They're they're doing things to you in the workplace. They're they're saying things about you behind your back. There's enmity there. And he therefore, Chris Austin says, exhorted them to have nothing in common with them. You know, don't, don't respond in kind. But to use them with all forbearance. And that, not only their brethren, but also their enemies and opposers. He's he's. Emphasizing how it says, let your gentleness be known, your your reasonableness to all men, not just those within the church. The learned uh, Protestant reformer, John Calvin, noted that this word was, quote, made use of by the Greeks themselves to denote moderation of spirit, When we're not easily moved by injuries, when we're not easily annoyed by adversity, but retain equanimity of temper, so it's this kind of stability, you know, not, not easily provoked. This, this graciousness, this gentle spirit, this reasonableness is to be known to all. Notice we're not to uh, let them know about it. We don't go around touting about, hey, I'm such a kind and reasonable person. No, it's to be known to all. Let it be known. That's passive don't make it known, let it be known. How? how? How does that happen? Well, because we're just to be this way. We're to be marked by this graciousness in all of our relationships, so consistently with all people, within the church, without the church, with those that agree with us politically, and those that are on the other side of the aisle politically that we're to be known by this in all, in all, to all people. And that's how we're to let it be known. And so, question to you this morning. Do people know you for your reasonableness, for your gentle spirit, your graciousness? You know, even those who might see a lot of things differently than you, can they nonetheless say, you know what, <laughs> that person, you know, that that lady or that guy they have a lot of weird views they're one of those backwards christians but i'll say this for them uh, you know you'll never meet a kinder person you know they they'd give you the shirt off their back they they're not someone that's going to fly off the handle at you they they wouldn't hurt a fly is your reasonableness known to all people or could people accuse you of being unreasonable and petty easily offended, keeping up quarrels that should have been resolved long ago. Remember that the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche is in the background of this in verses 2 and 3. If they continued their petty quarrel, they certainly would not have been known by all people for their reasonableness, their, their graciousness, their gentle spirits. Now, You may think of yourself as a reasonable and gracious person, but again, this is not what this verse is calling for. It's calling for a graciousness that is known by all. In other words, you can think that you're the most gracious and patient and kind and reasonable person in the world. That doesn't matter a hill of beans. Is it noticeable to others? That is the test. Is it noticeable to others? Not just a couple of people, not just to... Close friends. But is it noticeable to all? By everyone you meet and come in contact with. That is the test. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now this doesn't mean that we never say hard things. It doesn't mean that we shrink back from speaking hard truths that the world would call offensive. And yet we must do so in such a spirit of love that deep down... They know that we're saying these things because we love them so much and that should should prick their conscience. We we shouldn't come across as as better than thou types but with humility we speak the truth in love for the good of those who hear. Others shouldn't shy away from being transparent with us and being, being able to open up about deep spiritual things. They, they shouldn't shy away from talking with us about just, such things because they're, because they're afraid that we're going to fly off the handle at them. That we're going to, you know, that we, we get worked up easily. They shouldn't fear that about us. They should, they, should, they should be able to come to us and know that, you know what, they might say some things I don't agree with, but I know that they're going to they're gonna listen to me patiently And whatever they say, it's going to be said in love. They're going to be honest with me because they care about me. As Christians who know the one who approached us when we were at our worst, when we had no love for him, when he approached us while we were still hostile, while we were still his enemies in order to save us, who approached us in an act that would cost him his very life, we ought to be the most approachable of people. But passing on from this weather-beaten, resilient branch of the tree of godly emotion and godly disposition, we see another branch. And this one has, has many shoots that have grown straight upward towards the heavens, like so many hands raised in worshipful adoration and prayer. And this is the branch of peace Peace gained by many prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. So this is what's forbidden here. Anxiety, fretting, worrying. Now, this, this doesn't mean that whenever you are converted and once you become a true Christian, that all of a sudden you become just an unshakable fortress of emotional stability and you never again feel a tremor of worry or fear. That, that's not the case. I mean, all of us in this room ought to know that by experience by now. But more than by experience, notice Paul is writing to Christians here and he's telling them don't be anxious about anything. And so if he's telling this to Christians, well, this, this does it shows us that true Christians can be anxious. They do experience anxiety and they are they are to be called out of that. And so don't be overly downcast if if you are someone who is struggling with anxiety even this morning. Christians struggle. And some of us more than others. It is expected that we in our weakness we'll feel the icy grip of fear at times, getting a hold of us, causing us to shiver in our souls. At times, we will feel the, the pressure of, of concerns and cares and feel that something within us is, is about to snap. Like, I don't know how much more I can carry. I don't know how much longer I can carry this. We look into the uncertainties of life and the anxieties arise within us And this much is certain, we will all feel this way at times in different measures. Some of us, again, will be more prone to it than others, but all of us at times will feel this way. But it's what we do next that matters. What do we do when we're anxious? What do we do when we are afraid? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We we will have cares, but we're called to cast them upon God in prayer, for as 1 Peter 5 says, He cares for us. Let your requests be made known to God. I love what Matthew Henry said on this. He said... Not that God needs to be told either our wants or our desires, for He knows them better than we can tell them, but He will know them from us. He will know them from us, and He would would have us show our regards and concern and express our value of the mercy that we're seeking and our sense of dependence upon Him. God knows But he would know them from us. And we're to do this, our text says, with thanksgiving. Again, to quote Brother Matthew Henry, we must not only seek supplies of good, but own receipts of mercy. You know, how easy it is for us to come to God with a long list of requests and a short list of thanksgivings. How quickly we forget all that he's already done for us. Now, in passing, it needs to be said that, you know, this verse is not the only thing the Bible says about prayer. Uh, There are other passages that teach us how to ask God for things, how we should ask him, the kinds of things that uh, are proper to ask him for, the motives that can sometimes lead to unanswered prayers. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To consume it upon your passions. James 4. But here in in this passage, the focus is on anxiety and worry. And prayer is is mentioned right alongside of anxiousness. Because something is being said here about the relationship between anxiety and prayer leading to peace. Notice the, the progression here. This movement do not be anxious, but pray. And then the next verse, the peace of God, the peace of God. And so what this, what this is pointing us to is that prayer is, is being presented as an antidote to anxiety, an antidote for anxiety, prayer. Now, I realize that anxiety can be very complex. It can come from a variety of places, and though many of them are spiritual, it. It may be also that our bodies can act up in ways. You know, our bodies have been deeply affected by the fall. And our bodies can act up in certain ways that can cause us to feel the the feelings of anxiety. And sometimes we don't even know where it's coming from. Perhaps there's a place for certain medicines, if if used carefully and in certain circumstances, to limit some of these bodily malfunctions. Eating right, exercising... Getting plenty of rest, not overdoing caffeine, you know, keeping your blood pressure and your, your heart rate, all that, all that stuff is there's value in it. It's good, and neg- when neglected, these things can make us more prone to feelings of anxiety. You know, we're complex beings, but nevertheless, it remains that the ultimate antidote for anxiety that's presented in this text is prayer. Prayer to the God who cares for us and who has been so good to us and who has promised us his goodness, who has promised never to leave us or forsake us. You can eat all the right things, exercise plenty, be perfectly physically healthy, but if we have a, a deep anxiety problem, ultimately we need the Lord, we need his peace. We can cover up some of the symptoms, but to get to the root of the matter, we need to bring the matter to the great physician. This, he is the one who, who made us, who made our souls. He knows exactly what is wrong with us. This medicine of prayer is universal. It's available to the child of God in every situation. He says, in everything by prayer. Not just in certain circumstances when it's applicable, but in everything by prayer. And that God's peace guards our hearts and minds. Look at verse 7. Hearts and minds. In other words, our feeling, our hearts, and our thinking, our minds, His peace, Guarding us, watching over our feeling and our thinking. How? Through prayer. Through prayer. So, brother, sister, are you anxious this morning? Are you praying? Are you praying persistently, waiting upon the Lord, seeking the peace that comes from Him? Are you meditating on His promises? Have you been praying? Now to turn our attention to the second main point, you know we've looked at these different branches of healthy, godly emotions that, that are being called for here. But, but how do we get there? How, does, how do these things grow in the Christian life? And we talked just now about prayer. But let's, let's go down a little deeper and let's look at the, the rich soil of gospel truth that enables this healthy tree of godly emotions to grow. Let's look at the soil of gospel truth. When we come in prayer to God, humbly acknowledging our need with gratefulness for His mercies. As verse seven says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And notice that in verse seven, He doesn't say that your circumstances will change. The results of of that, you know, if we pray and all of a sudden God God takes us out of the trial, he removes from us the trouble, Well, what would that be? That would be a peace that's understandable. Anyone out in the world, whether they're uh, spiritual or secular, would get that. Yeah, when life is good, it's no wonder that you're feeling good. You don't have a trouble in the world. That makes sense but the peace that passes understanding well that's another thing entirely that's when you can that's when you can rest with Jesus in the middle of the storm peace that passes all understanding is when you can sing praises with tears in your eyes even though your family is falling apart because you're trusting God and you've done all that you can and you've You've poured out the rest of Him in prayer. You've cast all your cares upon Him, and you trust His providence. You trust that God is in control. He's got this, and He's got me. Peace that passes all understanding is a kind of peace that can't be explained by circumstances or because you're ignoring uh, circumstances by drugs or alcohol. It's it's this peace that comes from God, the kind of peace which Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And no, it is not found by tapping into something deep within us, Uh, whether or not we have Christ. It, It comes from outside of us. It comes from Jesus. My peace I give to you not look within yourself for peace. It is the peace of God, not the peace of man. In verse 7, it says that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier in verse 9, the God of peace will be with us as Christians. So this peace of God comes from the God of peace. It's a sign and a token that we can feel of his nearness to us. And that's what verse 5 points out. This little, there's this little phrase in verse 5 that we can almost read over and miss. It's, it says, the Lord is at hand. Or simply, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, as the NASB puts it. And the amazing thing is, as you hear these words, the Lord is near. You know what's amazing about those words? They don't terrify us. They don't terrify us that the Lord is near to us. Instead, they encourage us. It's amazing that we can hear the words, the Lord is near, and those words are, can be a comfort. They can fill us with hope and inspire courage and calm the anxiousness and and give us joy. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and when they heard God approaching, they hid. The Lord was near, and they were guilty. They had doubted his goodness, they had doubted his trustworthiness, they had listened to the serpent. The Lord was near. And so they hid. When the people of Israel saw the power of God and lightning and flashes and and the thick clouds of darkness and smoke that was covering Mount Sinai, when they heard his voice shaking the earth, shaking them to the very core of their being, the deafening thunder of his voice from Mount Sinai, they shrunk back, in fear he was the holy God who demanded perfect obedience they were sinners the Lord was near and they trembled and they stood at a distance and said to Moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but let not God speak to us or we will die the Lord was near and so they kept their distance When the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the throne of God and the seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Lord was near. And this man of God recognized that he was a sinner. He was sure his doom was sealed. And yet the Lord had mercy on him. This letter of Philippians has shown us back in chapter 2 that the Lord has come near. This time, not in the, the power and glory that belongs to him, but in the weakness and pain and misery that belongs to us. He came near, the eternal Son of God, the creator of the world, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and Spirit. He came near by taking the form of a servant, a human body and, and soul, being born of the Virgin Mary. He walked among us. The Lord was near. The Lord was near. And we crucified him. On that dark day, as the crowds screamed, crucify Him, crucify Him, human rebellion against God reached its peak. There in the hostility against the Lord who had come near was the fullest expression of what is within you and I, each of us, by fallen nature. That That I want it my way impulse that all of us know all too well. And Jesus stood in our way. And so people just like you and me put him on the cross to get him out of the way. The Lord had come near, but he was in our way. But this was why he came. And so he remained, he endured, he held back when he could have destroyed us all. And instead, his doom was sealed on that cross. Unlike sinful Isaiah, the Lord had no mercy on him who was sinless. He died for sinners such as us, and he rose again to endless life. So that sinners who repent, Trusting in this Lord who has come near to save us, we will be with Him forever. We will know the life that He gives. We'll be saved and share in His life. All, all of us who stop running from Him and start running to Him in repentance, we will be saved. So, what about you this morning? Are you running to Jesus? Do you trust Him that? He has invited you, sinner though you be, to come. Come to him, bringing all the disgusting filth of your sin. Come to him as you are, pleading for his mercy. Don't clean yourself up before you come. Come to the one whose blood can wash away every stain. Come to him, confessing your sins, pleading for his mercy, asking for him to save you and forgive you and pardon you and change you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're going to be a better person in the future. You can never be good enough. But by his grace, he has not demanded that we be good enough. Christ has been perfect for us. His righteousness is our only hope. And so have you come to Jesus to receive the gift of his forgiveness? Are you trusting yourself to this Lord who has come near with compassion and mercy and salvation, though we deserve not one shred of it? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? It's because Christ has come near to us in mercy that we can hear these words that we've read in this text. We who are forgiven reconciled to God having peace with God through the blood of his cross through his sacrifice we can hear these words the lord is near we can hear them with joy they encourage us who believe who believe the lord is near to help us his providential care governs every single detail of our lives all things working together for good to those that love god who are the called according to his purpose his peace guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus no trial comes upon us that catches god off guard he sends to us the necessary trials that are for our good and for his glory he disciplines us not rashly but only as it is needed considering our weakness considering our frame only that which is for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, 10. This Lord is not far off. He has not forgotten you. He doesn't, at the beginning of the Christian life, send you a FedEx shipment of everything you'll need for the next 20, 30 years of living life in this world and says, all right, I've, I've given you what you need. Take that and be off with you. No. He gives us day by day... Our supply of grace. Give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to keep coming back each day for more. He saves us to Himself. He is near. He sees all. He is ready to judge and avenge. And so we need not avenge ourselves. We don't need to be afraid that if I don't look out for myself, no one will. If I don't stand up for my rights, no one will. If I don't strike back, this evil will just go on and and it will never be dealt with. No, the Lord is near. His sword is sharpened to execute judgment on the earth. Read Psalm 110. Read Revelation 19. The judge of the earth is not far away. He will come at the appointed time. But in the meantime, he lingers. Perhaps those that you'd retaliate against will soon... Receive a share of the mercy that you've received. And you will see that Christ's blood was for them as well as for you. And so the Lord is near. It encourages us to be gracious, to have this gentle spirit, to be able to weather the the insults and the storms and the debris that people throw at us in life. The Lord is near encourages us to joy, for he's given us his own Holy Spirit as the earnest, the assurance of his promise that he will come again, that where he is, we may also be. He will come again, and we shall see him face to face. That the Lord is near encourages the believer to peace, for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, as Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, the Lord is my helper, Not just an angel, but the Lord himself is my helper. He will never lead us, leave us or forsake us. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? The Lord is at hand. He is near. And because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's good news for us who believe. He is near to us now, guiding, protecting, helping. And he is near to returning. We don't know the day or the hour. But in Revelation 22, right at the end of the Bible, he says to us this, surely I am coming soon. And we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. So in the meantime, as we live in this world, just in closing, how ought we to live? How ought we to live as we await the return of the one who says, I am coming When it comes to our mental state, our emotional state, we who have his protection, we who have his presence, who is is near, this promise to comfort us, we ought to cultivate by the power of the Holy Spirit little by little, day by day, confessing where we fall short, rejoicing, reasonableness, and peace rooted in the rich soil of his gospel truth. The mental state of those under the protection of the God of peace ought to be rejoicing, reasonableness, and peace. Thanks be to God for giving us valid reason for each of these emotions so that we ought to experience them. And Thanks be to God for his patience with us and his mercy towards us when we don't. Thanks be to God for his nearness to help us so that we may. Let's pray. Lord, our God, as we consider what you have invited us to, what you've called us to, Lord, we recognize we've got a lot of growing to do. I recognize that I have a lot of growing to do. And so, Lord, we confess that. We acknowledge to you our weakness. We acknowledge to you the areas where we are falling short. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy that is new every morning because we need it every morning. But, Lord, help us. Thank you that you have given these things to us as gifts of your Holy Spirit, fruit of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Grow into each of these godly emotions and dispositions that you may be glorified, remembering that you are near. In Jesus' name, amen.